0: welcome to open spaces from wyoming public radio news i'm bob back
1: and i'm caroline ballard today we'll be joined by governor matt mead who will recap the legislative session and reiterate the need to diversify the state's economy.
2: We've got to diversify for our revenue, and importantly, I think we've just really got to diversify it to give more opportunities for young people to stay in the state of Wyoming.
0: We will be joined by Baroness Catherine Ashton, who is visiting Laramie this
3: week. It's a time when I think most people who've been looking at our world through their lifetime see us more turbulent than one they can remember.
1: Plus, stories on energy and an evocative new play is exploring what the Ku Klux Klan and Native Americans have in common using black humor.
4: Anyone can make a fake business card. Seriously,
5: who makes a Ku Klux Klan business card? (laughs)
0: It's all coming up on Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News.
1: Welcome to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Caroline Ballard.
0: And I'm Bob Beck. It's been a little over a month since the Wyoming legislative session ended, and today Governor Matt Mead joins me to reflect on the session, among other things. Many left the legislative session with bad feelings, but Mead says he was pleased with what lawmakers did for economic development. Among other things, the legislature supported his endow plan
2: for diversifying the economy. I think it's so important, you know, as we look at our revenue, 70% of our revenue roughly comes from one source, and that's minerals. And even in good times, that's really not a, a good thing. And so we've got to diversify for our revenue. And importantly, I think we've just really got to diversify it to give more opportunities for our young people to stay in the state of Wyoming. And I think we can. I think that it's not that people haven't tried in the past. I think there have been some wonderful changes in the state. That will allow that to uh, happen uh, in a real way these days.
0: How hard is it going to be to actually get everybody on board of diversification? Because at, at times, especially with legislators who've been there a while, we still have people really still. Oh yeah, well we'll diversify by doing this with the minerals industry. It didn't seem like people are going beyond that.
2: Well, I, I I worry about that somewhat. I mean, I and not any one person, but all of us I suspect can say are definition of diversity is to uh, you know have a, a thousand more steers or ten more wells <laughs> but it's it's got to be much broader than that. As you know I one of my big pushes has been technology and uh, I really think in the broadest sense of technology whether it's telemedicine whether it is data centers whether it is flying cars I just think we need to think in very broad terms and some of the stuff that's happening in the university you know with uh artificial intelligence, with engineering, I think there's an excitement in the state. And part of it is because of the connectivity that we have and to be able to share ideas. And now, you know, with the the work that I've done with the XPRIZE Foundation and getting to talk to some of those people who have ideas from how do do you mine a a meteorite to how do you mine the moon, And, and it's broadened my horizons in terms of, you know, there's a big world out there, and I think Wyoming really needs to, not how we do a little better in ag or a better and mineral, we've got to do that as well. But just in the broadest sense, what can our wonderful state do with the resources that we have, including, uh, you know, taking advantage of our wildlife and our outdoors and that outdoor recreation task force we put together. I think they're going to help on that diversity plan. And it's for revenue, but it's also just uh, so we can have, you know, our, when our kids graduate from high school or college, they, they have other choices. Uh, and as many choices as we can give them is the best way possible to get more of our kids in the state.
0: Well, was one of the negatives how they dealt with the education issue, or, 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 or are you happy with that?
2: Well, no, I'm not, I'm not happy with uh, how they dealt with education. And I don't mean that as a negative I, in the sense that they didn't try. I think they really tried. I think it's really a hard problem. But, you know, on the last day, I'm running between the, you know, the different chambers talking to people, um, you know, because we certainly couldn't have gotten out of the session without something being done. And so I I don't cast fault on the legislature as a result of that. I just think it's, I don't think anybody came out of there and said, man, we've really figured out the key for education. There is, you know... We we did some things, but the hard lift is still to come, and I think recalibration is going to be key to that because now the questions for me and the legislature, rightfully so, are, okay, well, you've still got a big hole. What are you going to do? Until we can get recalibration, it's hard to say, well, we need to cut this amount or we need to raise revenue this amount because that number of recalibration... Uh, you know, we can agree or disagree with it, but that's certainly going to be a starting point for whether we want to be above or below that and what the legal ramifications that may be. The
0: thought to get the school district's input, I guess that you could look at that a couple of ways. Are you optimistic that you might get something positive out of that process?
2: You know, you saw that uh, Camel County has... Uh, I can't remember whether there's a proclamation or declaration mm-hmm. that they're considering sue in the state but even camel county and i think all the districts i think they recognize that we you know it's it's not that there's all of a sudden a sea change where we say hey we're just not interested in funding and education they understand that we you know if we don't get a cured next session we run out of money and so i i have uh I think there's good faith in the districts to work with us. That doesn't mean we'll agree, but I don't see how, as a state, we can move forward without a larger involvement beyond the legislative walls and beyond the executive branch walls. We've got to involve the districts and the parents because if we make additional cuts, and I believe we will have to make additional cuts, if we have to raise revenue, and I believe we are going to have to find additional revenue, those are not things that you can do in isolation and just uh, announce to the citizens, hey, we've done this. I think that discussion has to be broad and have their input on it so people understand, one, what the nature of the problem, and two, can help us find solutions. So I'm, I'm optimistic that while there may not be agreement on everything, I think the districts and uh, even beyond the districts, uh, those are places that we should be looking for assistance and the right path forward.
0: Governor Matt made visiting with us. You mentioned revenue.
2: I was
0: interested that at least the House at different times seemed to at least entertain the possibility of doing little something specifically for education. But is that sort of what you would like to see if we're, if we're going to do any revenue? Let's focus it on something, or do we need broad revenue for all of state government?
2: I mean, outside of the real challenge we have on education, I think it's a good time, and I think this can even be part of it. And endow, is what is our tax tax structure broadly? Uh, people, and there's some merit in there, so yeah, you can uh, recruit all the technology uh, data centers you want here, but if the tax structure isn't something that we actually get a, a revenue out of that, what is the point of that? There's still a point to it, and I don't think that's necessarily true, but it is something that we have to be sensitive to is, do we have the right tax structure? And it's it's not, hey, the minerals uh, are paying the bill and we just want to give them a break. It's that when you have minerals paying so much of the load, we see these spikes in our revenue. And these spikes in the revenue are a bad deal because, and this oversimplifies it, but the point I'm trying to make is year one we say you can have 100 people in your nursing home. Year two we say cut 50. <laughs> And so I think there needs to be a broader discussion regarding our tax structure in the state of Wyoming. Uh, and the broader the tax structure in uh, and, and general, it's a, it's, it's a better policy, in my view. It's a tricky issue in Wyoming, but
0: the more you talk to people you realize that a lot of us are on scholarship in the state we we get all these services and we aren't paying anything for that uh, do we need to have that discussion first amongst the politicians before we get to the people because uh, it
2: seems like they may be worse than the people well I, you know i mean i think the the politicians we are the lowest you know in, in most parts we're the lowest tax state i mean we get a lot of services without having to pay a lot and so I think it's a combination of things. I think you look at the efficiency, I hope we do something with the efficiency study. I think with regard to education, I know the Senate felt that let's first make cuts before we look at revenue, but even in the Senate, I think there's an agreement that we need revenue. Now, that may not be new taxes. It may be we're going to burn up the rainy day fund, and I'm not suggesting that's the way they're going to go. but. That it's a broad discussion that includes, when they say new revenue, it means using some of the money we have right now in a different way than we have in the past, including the statutory diversion. So.
0: Governor, I was curious your thoughts when Congress was looking at the ACA and and possibly doing away with it. And uh, did, Was there ever a point where you were nervous about that approach because it could possibly backfire in the
2: state? Well, and it was interesting. I went to National Governors Association in, uh, in February, and that's a bipartisan group, Republican and Democrat governors. And just sitting with some Democrat and Republican governors of small states, we worry about it uh, not just in the R&D sense, we worry about rural states. The ACA. One of the many problems with it is they they tried to bite off so much stuff, and when you do that, you got to look at the you know sort of the big number pictures, which inevitably sort of leaves rural states hanging more often than not, and so working uh, a group of us went over and met with uh, select members of Congress, uh, expressing our concerns, uh, had. Uh, Several conversations uh, with the HHS uh, secretary. I think there's great improvements that could be had in the ACA, including, you know, uh, some disagree with this, a work requirement on Medicaid expansion. It won't hit uh, the majority of people, but it's something, or education along with that. The, The problem is they haven't got it done. The clock is ticking. Uh, we still have, you know, 20,000 people who fall in the gap. We still have small hospitals that are living on a small amount of cash, you know, 60, 90 days cash. We still have uh, the, the challenge that rural health care uh, is always there. And now we have the added challenge. You know, we basically down to one insurance company in the state. And uh, we need to, I, uh, changes need to be happening with the ACA, but... To have this limbo period I don't think is good for anybody, whether you're pro-ACA or you're or against ACA.
0: One last thing for you, Governor. Uh, you're, you're watching some of these federal regulations that were imposed by the Obama administration slowly get dismissed by the Trump administration. Is there ever a concern, though, that you go too far? Well, you get rid of everything, but you don't have then any rules in place.
2: Well, it's interesting, you know, you probably saw the article. There were some recent, uh, some of the big coal companies were talking about the Paris Agreement. And they they suggest, listen, we, we there's huge improvements. You know, the Clean Power Plan, I was strongly objected to, the Regional Haze Plan. But nobody in Wyoming wants to get rid of all rules and regulations. I mean, we care about our clean air, clean water, and, you know, certainly I do as well. That's just on a practical front. And then politically, I think to your question is, um, you know President Trump's not going to be president forever and you go too far in one way whether it's regarding wildlife, uh, whether it's regarding the energy, whether it's regarding health care uh, you know there's going to be a snapback I mean that's the nature of Congress and so I think we have to uh, plan for the long term especially when it comes to coal We want coal to be a big part of our future for a long period of time and to say that uh, you know I've, I think this is the time to double down on, carbon capture sequestration technology like we're doing at the Dry Fork station. We have a little breathing room to, to help find some answers. And so don't uh, don't take your foot off the gas on trying to find answers that uh, will advance uh, coal uh, for the long term.
0: But especially also looking at making it as environmentally yeah, exciting.
2: Yeah, that's the, that's the beauty of the Integrated Test Center in Campbell County. Is it's just not the capture of CO2, it's the utilization of CO2. And I think that's where the real sweet spot is, and that's why I'm so excited by that project, is because if you can capture and utilize CO2 in not only an environmentally friendly way, but a, in a commercially viable way, I think that is a big game changer for coal. And it's important to do it not just for this country, but... If you're concerned about the climate uh, and the environment globally, uh, we want to find the answers, right? Because China, India, other countries are going to continue to burn coal. And if you produce the amount of coal Wyoming does, you should be a leader not only in the production, but in the, you know, in the technology and the innovation. And that's uh, exactly where I think the state should be going. Governor Mead, I always appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Bob, always great to see you. Thank you.
1: When we come back, we'll talk about the connections between past and present during UW's Heart Mountain Week. This is Open Spaces.
0: Welcome back to Open Spaces. I'm Bob Beck.
1: And I'm Caroline Ballard. This year is the 75th anniversary of the executive order that led to the internment of Japanese-Americans during World War II. To mark the occasion, the University of Wyoming College of Law is hosting Heart Mountain Week, a week of programming that explores what can be learned from this chapter in American history. Director of the International Human Rights Clinic and Assistant Professor of Law Susie Pritchett joined me to talk about Heart Mountain Week and says it starts off with a mock trial where students will use historic events to create a trial that never actually happened.
6: It's going to be um, looking back to the Heart Mountain internment, and um, a mock trial is going to be held that explores how um, the the different ideas surrounding the draft that took place during World War II um, came out at Heart Mountain and how those were handled. And then the rest of the week has somewhat related panels. There's going to be another one that looks at Um, lessons from Heart Mountain where individuals who were um, interned or had family members interned there are going to be speaking about their experience. That's followed by another panel that looks at executive orders And this country. Historically, it's the 75th anniversary of the executive order that led to the Japanese internment during World War II. And it's going to be juxtaposed against the recent executive orders issued by President Trump, Um, around immigration and the ban on travelers from certain travelers coming into this country. It wraps up with a couple of other um, immigration-based panels that look at both the economic impacts of immigration and particularly what the travel ban means for the University of Wyoming and our state, and then finally working with students at the University of Wyoming to talk a little bit about their experience, both international students and those students who are here um, and have concerns about what the Trump administration means for immigration policies going forward.
1: Why was the theme of Heart Mountain chosen for this historic trial and this programming?
6: So my colleague at the law school, Steve Easton, regularly for the past three years has held a historic trial event. And each year it's something different. Um, This year, he and the students who help him organize this thought Heart Mountain would be a good topic because it's the 75th anniversary. And as they were talking and planning the historic trial, they thought, this is really interesting to talk about what happened and the situation that led up to Japanese internment in light of the current immigration situation in this country. And so it really went from one singular activity to this larger week that's touching on various aspects of the, the immigration conversation going on in our country.
1: Why is Heart Mountain an effective lens to look at current events?
6: I think Heart Mountain is an interesting framework and lens to look back and think about how presidential authority has been used in the past in the name of national security and how Decisions are made in the moment that we come to later look back on differently with some time and some space. And I think there's a large consensus now, of course, that interning the Japanese during World War II was a mistake. That was a dark time in our history. And we've tried to recover and and say never again. Um, Whether or not that's a direct parallel to what's happening today, I think is open to debate. But it certainly raises interesting questions about the scope of the president's executive authority. You know, there are very valid public policy reasons on both sides of this debate. National security is an important issue. The president does have decision-making authority in some of these areas, but at what cost and what's the most effective way to do that? And, of course, our university um, has a large international student body. We're feeling the impacts from the travel bans and the proposals that are coming out of the Trump administration. Our country, I think, is suffering effects from um, you know, in terms of decreased tourism and trickle-down impacts on our economy. So these, these debates that were had, you know, back in World War II are con- continuing today, and we're trying to ask what lessons have we learned in order to move forward knowing the importance of national security but also having um, the lessons of history on our side.
1: As the Director of the International Human Rights Clinic and as an Assistant Professor of Law, mm-hmm. are you hearing concerns from students about executive orders and immigration is this Is this something students are, are talking about among themselves
6: yeah I've had a lot of um feedback from students, both those who are directly impacted because they are international students from countries that have been included in the travel ban, both its first and second iteration, but also a number of students who are either undocumented or are in the DACA program and are concerned about Trump's enforcement priorities, which have expanded dramatically um, in comparison to President Obama's, as well as what it means for their families. So I have affected students who have real immigration status concerns for themselves. And then I have a whole group of law students that Um, are interested in the practice of immigration law and interested in what our immigration policies look like, who have also reached out to me and want to understand more about the system so they have a better idea of the role that they can play once they're out and practicing immigration law.
1: Susie Pritchett is the director of the International Human Rights Clinic and an assistant professor of law at the University of Wyoming. Thanks so much for speaking to us today. Thanks for having me.
0: When we come back, we'll talk about coal and natural gas and have a discussion with Baroness Catherine Ashton. It's all coming up on Open Spaces.
1: Welcome back to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm
0: Caroline Ballard. And I'm Bob Beck. A lot has happened in the world of coal mining in the last week or so. The biggest coal company in the U.S., Peabody Energy, emerged from bankruptcy, and the Interior Secretary lifted an Obama-era ban on new coal leases. But what does it all mean for Wyoming's coal future? To figure it out, Wyoming Public Radio's Melody Edwards sat down with Rob Godby, the director at the Center for Energy Economics and Public Policy at the University
7: of Wyoming. So in Peabody's case, um, they made some significant and expensive acquisitions of mines in Australia. Those bonds came due. That met play never really occurred because of the slowdown that's occurred in China, competition, and they really weren't able to service the debt that they had from Met Coal. And then having the general slowdown in the coal market in the United States only made things worse because their other side of the business, the thermal coal market, didn't generate enough revenue to avoid that. So under that heavy burden of debt, they declared bankruptcy.
8: You know, you mentioned Australia. that that In their press release, they're kind of saying that One of the ways that they were able to emerge from bankruptcy was that they were able to bring down some of the costs in Australia. Do you know kind of what it was that they did? What did they adjust there?
7: There were several things. So they rationalized some of their assets, that is to say, they downsized some of them. Um, They also used mechanization. And on the other side, there's been kind of a recovery in that market. Basically, they reduce their costs significantly um, in that area. And that's something that you really uh, have a better chance of doing when you're in bankruptcy because effectively it's either we make this adjustment or you face the uncertainty of, of these assets shutting down or or being sold off to another owner.
8: And then last week, the the coal ban was lifted. Does this bode well for them being able to expand some of their production here in Wyoming?
7: Sure. So the moratorium was put in place at a time when the coal markets were obviously down. You know, In Wyoming, there hadn't been coal leases since basically 2012. And so with the coal lease moratorium being lifted, this will allow their company and other companies operating in the Powder River Basin to access coal when they need it or when it makes operational sense in a way they couldn't. But to be honest with you, there's not going to be a rush to the land office to buy those leases because there just really isn't the demand. The slowdown in coal production didn't happen because companies were running out of coal. What they ran out of was customers to buy the coal.
2: Um,
8: You mentioned that uh, this has also been referred to as the coal pause. When I talked to the BLM last week, that's how they referred to it. Um, And so, you know, I I think people didn't realize that that the coal moratorium had more than one reason for um, the Obama administration for implementing it, that it wasn't just an environmental decision, um, that it also had to do with kind of restructuring the way that we evaluate the fair market values. Can you talk just a little bit about that?
7: Right. So coal leases occurring on federal land are permission to mine an asset that belongs to everybody in the United States. So it's an asset that we all have an interest in. And the reason that the moratorium went into effect was partly environmental, Um, but really what it was was to reassess how we do this federal leasing process in the United States because there really hadn't been any major changes since the 1980s. And coal leases are different from oil and gas leases and they're typically not competitive. In oil and gas leases, they open up federal land for leases And you have a lot of companies typically that are interested in exploring those lands and possibly developing them. And so they compete. And like a normal auction, they bid the price up. And that's how we determine the market price. For coal leases, very often it's not an open auction in that way where they say, these are lands that we think would be suitable for mining. Typically, it works just the opposite way a company goes to the BLM and says, we would be interested in mining this land. So for that reason, you typically only get one bidder. And when you only have one bidder in an auction, it's not clear that the price that they bid is going to be the market price. They have every incentive to keep it as low as they can. So that was really just a reconsideration of the entire leasing process and what might work in addition to including the, social, the potential social costs of carbon and whether the royalty should reflect the, the damage that carbon greenhouse gases may have on society.
8: And, you know, having lifted the ban, is there any ideas that you can see where we might be able to still restructure this within the framework that we're working with now?
7: Uh, It's unlikely that the royalty rate will change under this administration. I mean, the Trump administration has basically said that that sounds like they're not really considering that. But we could still see potentially some changes in the leasing process. So instead of having an auction, um, we could have a different process where we end up trying to find a different way of finding that fair market price. And it's still open how that could work.
8: Any closing thoughts in terms of just where we're at in Wyoming with our coal industry?
7: Um, So the coal industry is challenged. You know, I think most analysts think that we'll probably see a slight rebound in coal production. We've already hit bottom. Uh, that was mainly driven by exceptionally low natural gas prices, which are rising and kind of coming to what people think are going, is going to be a longer term equilibrium. Uh, there's a lot of competition in the market. Natural gas is still relatively low priced. Uh, renewables are an ongoing uh, challenge because they're growing. And they're very cost competitive. Many people don't realize that the cheapest type of new generation facility that a, a utility, for example, could build is a, is a wind power plant. Uh, solar is becoming very competitive. So uh, coal's historic dominance in the electricity market is going to be weakening, but it's not going away anytime soon. And, you know, I've often said that the You know, if there ever comes a time when the last coal train leaves the station, it'll probably leave in Wyoming.
8: Well, thank you very much for taking some time to talk to me about this.
7: You're welcome. That was Wyoming
0: Public Radio's Melody Edwards speaking with the director of the Center for Energy Economics and Public Policy, Rob Gottby.
1: The fracking boom has ushered in cheap natural gas prices nationwide. Now nearly 40 states have adopted or are looking at new legislation to expand natural gas service to rural America. That's where most of the 12 million homes are located that still rely on propane. Inside Energy's Amy Sisk reports from a remote North Dakota town looking to make the switch. Rugby may be only 3,000 people, but it's a regional
9: hub in northern North Dakota. It sports dozens of businesses with big commercial energy users, like a grain elevator and a truck parts manufacturer.
2: We're blessed with with good water, good schools, great health care.
9: That's State Representative John Nelson of Rugby.
2: But where we get hung up in uh, attracting industrial growth is the lack of natural gas.
9: His community relies mainly on propane and electricity for heating and manufacturing processes. So do more than 300 other small North Dakota towns, and thousands more throughout rural America. Community leaders here say gas heating could save large commercial users thousands of dollars a year and provide savings for homeowners. It could also attract new businesses and it could put Bakken gas to use. North Dakota has one of the nation's most productive oil fields. For years, excess gas that came to the Earth's surface when drilling for oil was flared off. The state did not have infrastructure in place to capture it. That's now changing.
6: The irony is
2: you have a lot of gas in your state.
9: Kyle Rogers is with the American Gas Association.
2: Your gross domestic product could potentially go up exponentially because you can attract manufacturing to use that natural gas.
9: But at what cost? It's $1 million per mile to extend a natural gas pipeline to a new community. And the closest line to rugby is 20 miles away. People in rugby have an idea. Avoid a pipeline altogether and set up their own natural gas island. Father Tom Grainer tells me about it as we walk through town. He's the local Catholic priest and president of the Job Development Authority.
0: We'll bring a couple vendors in and look at what would it take to set up a liquid natural gas or compressed natural gas plant in town and, and put some basic trunk lines in and go from there.
9: Trains roll through here all the time. They're one option for carting in gas in liquid or compressed form, or it could be trucked in, just like propane. Rugby would install a small distribution line network to carry gas to consumers from the plant it builds, but there's a holdup. In Bismarck at the state capitol, I take the elevator up to Public Service Commissioner Julie Fedorchuk's office. PSC regulations are geared toward big utilities. For example, it's a $150,000 fee anytime there's a rate change.
6: Well, our regulatory oversight isn't hugely burdensome for a company that's operating on really tight margins like they would
4: be to, to make something work in a, in a smaller town. It can make a big difference.
9: So Representative John Nelson of Rugby, with Fedorchuk's support, proposed a bill this legislative session modeled on a Minnesota law. Small towns could seek a waiver from PSC Oversight to craft a plan to bring in natural gas. Rugby would likely be the first town to try it. House Bill
0: 1398 is declared passed.
9: It cleared the legislature this month. North Dakota's not alone in making this a priority. States from Mississippi to Connecticut are trying everything from offering tax credits to rebates to low-interest financing to bring in gas. In North Dakota, these ideas face opposition from the state's Propane Trade Association. Mike Rood is executive director.
7: We can't stop any utility company from coming in and supplying natural gas to a community, but we don't believe the state or anyone else should be involved in uh, helping to set an unfair playing field.
9: His organization has fought successfully against other state efforts to subsidize the extension of gas service to rural communities. Another potential loser if natural gas is extended are rural utilities. But Josh Kramer sees an upside if new businesses are drawn to the area. He's general manager of the North Dakota Association of Rural Electric Cooperatives.
2: It's going to bring people to that community or living around the community and they're going to need electrical service as well.
9: Back in Rugby, some local businesses are eager for the change. At Rugby Manufacturing, Jeff Dukeshire gives me a tour of his facility where they make truck equipment. Right now, they use propane for heating and to fuel the painting process. It's expensive, and the price fluctuates a lot, affecting his bottom line.
5: We're selling product throughout the entire country, so a lot of our competitors that aren't in these colder climates, you know, that's one area that they don't have to deal with that we do.
9: He thinks natural gas is the way to go to ensure that stability and a way to keep towns like Rugby on the map. For Inside Energy, I'm Amy Sisk.
1: Inside Energy is a public media collaboration focused on America's energy issues.
0: Baroness Catherine Ashton has done a lot. She is the former vice president of the European Commission and former High Representative of the EU for Foreign Affairs and Security Policy. She negotiated the Serbia-Kosovo Peace Agreement and the Iran Nuclear Agreement. She was a leader in the U.K. House of Lords and has worked to fight for minority rights. Baroness Ashton is visiting the University of Wyoming this weekend. And she joins us now. Well, Baroness, first off, thank you so much for taking time to come in and visit with us. Uh, And and the timing is interesting with what happened in Syria uh, last night. I'm curious your read on that response by the Trump administration.
3: I think, you know, looking across what everyone's saying, both here in the States and across the world, the feeling that these chemical attacks on innocent people, are just one more example of the horror and terror that's going on across Syria. And it looks from this point uh, that the president made the decision that he was not going to let this pass without a response. I read the international community saying two things in reply. One is a lot of support, not of course from everywhere, but a lot of support. But also I think wanting now to see where this is going to go. What is the Mm -hmm. longer term plan, the strategy For Syria, because the war that's been going on for so long, we need to get to the point as soon as we possibly can to try and find a way to stop this uh, and to bring back some hope to the people who've suffered for such a long time.
0: The President, during his campaign many times, had indicated that he wanted to worry more about this country and not about the world. Did this give you some comfort that maybe that was more rhetoric?
3: Well, I think in when, when you're campaigning domestically, your audience is a very domestic one. And my experience of politicians campaigning across Europe has been when it comes to election time, you focus on the bread and butter issues, mm-hmm. as we call them, that voters care about. It's about education. It's about work. It's about healthcare, It's about all sorts of things that are the day-to-dayness of, of living. And international issues tend to play a different role. But the reality is when in office, of course, one is confronted, especially with the United States, with having to respond or deal with the challenges of a world that is going through some really difficult turmoil in parts of it. And that's what we're now seeing.
0: So you've watched uh, an interesting couple of years, uh, the EU, of course, everything that happened there, and then watching what happened in this country. I, I, I imagine you were surprised at anyone uh, to see how that changed and and President Trump got elected. I I like the name of your talk, the New World Disorder, but I I mean, do you see things in chaos right now?
3: Or is there concern? You know, I've given up speculating about what could happen (laughs) because all the time I was in office, we were confronted with changes, very dramatic events from the Arab Spring to the events in Ukraine that we could not have predicted. Some people perhaps would argue that they had predicted it, but I can't. Pretend that I ever saw any predictions at the time. And when you look at our world now, we have more refugees than I think we had in World War II. We have a large number of countries going through some really difficult moments. And the spread of the effect of what's happening is way beyond state borders. Uh, The nations are not able to contain what's uh, concerning them. And we see, of course, these terrible events across the world. Uh, reflected as terrorism. So it's a time when I think most people who've been looking at our world through their lifetime see as more turbulent than one they can remember. More demands being made on everything from humanitarian aid through to strong diplomatic efforts to the role of organisations like NATO and the role of the military. And we have to be more clever, really, more smart about how we respond to this. So one of the things I'm looking at is what is the diplomatic toolkit that we have? What do we need to think about uh, in terms of how we actually try and make our world more calm, more tranquil uh, and be better?
0: I hope I'm not asking a stupid question here, but you've you've been involved in a lot of turmoil and negotiating, brokering some deals for, for years. And, and so I'm wondering, when you have terrorism outfits like ISIS and, and other things going on like that that seem a little bit unique that we've not necessarily seen in the past, how do you broker deals in situations like that?
3: Well, I think it's very difficult to imagine brokering deals with them. But there are unquestionably people who need to be uh, persuaded that they shouldn't participate in this. You know, one of the big challenges for every country where there is a possibility of terrorism is to make sure that the population is not drawn to that via Mm. the internet, via contacts, uh, via a sense of not belonging to the community. I make no excuses for it, but I think we have to be quite vigilant in that and quite positive in our outreach to try and deal with that and the brokering of deals is about how you uh, in the end in areas of conflict find peace for the people and find ways to stop the conflict from continuing because in areas of conflict and confusion you know those are good breeding grounds for those who want to take this much further.
0: Can I change gears a little bit? Uh, you're a, a woman leader uh, and uh, have been, uh, I, I know there was suspicion about you early on in your career and then and, and you were able to win people over. A lot of women very discouraged in this country uh, after Hillary Clinton had her defeat. What do you say to folks? Uh, keep trying? I mean, what's, what's the advice?
3: Yeah, I mean, you know, women are half the population and we can do just as well or just as badly as men at everything. <laughs> Um, we are different. Uh, We are brought up in a sense, uh, perhaps in a different way. We frame our lives in in different ways. But we're just as capable and we should be just as ambitious. And, you know, the best work I've ever done is when you get the combination of men and women working together because the different skills, the different experiences, the different ways of being uh, make the brilliant, heady combination that can lead to real success. So, to any women, you know, just keep going. You know, there are real opportunities and there are real things to be done and we need women to do them.
0: I imagine Serbia-Kosovo was a big moment for you. You get that resolved and then then you have a little more cachet going into the next event.
3: Yeah, and, you know, that was important because it was an area of the world where I felt it was extremely important that Europe was seen to be able to do something, if you like, in its own backyard. Um, It was also a way of saying to the US that we were capable of trying to resolve some issues where we traditionally maybe relied a lot on you. And it was good for Europe to do that. And I was fortunate to be able to work with the prime ministers of both uh, in a framework that recognised that we couldn't do everything at once, but we could start to make some progress. And they were terrific. And it was an interesting and fascinating time. But yes, it did. Without doubt, once we'd done that... People said, well, that showed there are things that can be done, and maybe, just maybe, she can do them.
0: Baroness Catherine Ashton, welcome to Laramie. Thank you so much.
3: Thank you.
1: When we come back, we'll hear a report about a controversial play in Laramie. This is Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces. I'm Caroline Ballard.
0: And I'm Bob Beck. This month, the PBS television show called Travels with Darley comes to Wyoming. The episode will air Monday night, April 17th at 10 on Wyoming PBS. The host, Darlie Newman, joins me to discuss the show.
4: And I travel around the U.S. and the globe with locals as my guides. I really feel like that's the best way to see a place, to get that local insight. We cover food, culture, and adventure. And we really look to find great hidden gems.
0: So some of those hidden gems you found are in Wyoming, and you're going to feature them on a program on April 17th. What attracted you to Wyoming?
4: Wyoming is a beautiful state. I mean, I love the great outdoors. I love to be out in nature. Um, My show, Equitrecking, which filmed in Wyoming previously, it's it's a show where I horseback ride around the world. Wyoming has amazing dude ranches, great national forests, great places to ride. So that that originally attracted me to Wyoming. And then we were just super excited to come back and really dive deeper into the nature. This new episode explores Wyoming national forests and the surrounding communities as well and we just really were, were kind of all over the state from Jackson Hole all the way down to the Laramie area, so we covered a, a good bit of ground.
0: Yeah, and let's talk a little bit about that. You know, so often when folks come here, they'll hit the national parks and and some of the more famous sites. Uh, you, you did hit a few of those uh, famous areas, uh, but you've also probably picked out a few areas that not everybody in the country would know about.
4: Yeah, we did. We, we were down in the Bridger-Teton National Forest around Pinedale, and I actually went fishing out on Fremont Lake, which was Beautiful, and it was, it was fun to actually be in a town that's also kind of caters to outdoor lovers. I felt like Pinedale was one of those towns that not only has a rich history related to that, but is also great for modern travelers. We traveled to the Sar- Saratoga and to Encampment, and we looked at the history of women firefighters um, in our national forest. We went over the Snowy Range Scenic Byway, which is just absolutely beautiful, um, so we did a mix of scenic drives. I went horseback riding in the Medicine Bow National Forest. So we we definitely got off the beaten path. But we were also around Jackson Hole and doing mountain biking on the Cache Creek Trail in the Bridger-Teton, and helping with restoring actually a trail and building a new trail. So people have great places to continue to hike around the area. Try to experience as much as I can, but also, again, do it with the locals who have that great knowledge, and will definitely share with with me and with our viewers something that maybe you didn't even know if you lived in Wyoming.
0: Well, and I think that's what's interesting is that that's the big part of the show is you have local tour guides. You had uh, Rebecca Walsh who helped you out here in the Laramie area.
4: Rebecca is just a hiking enthusiast. She has just trails. And she has her own small business. She's a mom, but she's just someone who loves to be out in nature and has parlayed that passion into kind of her everyday life. So I think when you hike with someone that, or you do any activity with someone who has such a passion for it, it really makes that activity that much better. Um, we we often go out with local tour companies, local guides, but also just regular local people who have a love for the area. And hiking with Rebecca of was certainly special. She knows Vida Vu so well. We were able to hike up through the rocks. I mean, hiking on rocks is something, again, unique and different as well. But getting up to a place when the sun is, you know, starting to go down at dusk and just seeing the different shadows and, and being there with someone who really, really genuinely loves that place, it makes that place so much more special.
0: Now, the program airs on Monday nights at 10 on Wyoming PBS. This particular episode will air Monday night, April 17th at 10. If, if folks miss it, is it available somewhere online? They can also check it out?
4: We actually, if you go to TravelsWithDarley.com, we have um, short videos that you can watch from the Wyoming episodes, and we also have a channel on AOL and MSN where you can check out clips. Okay.
0: Well, Darlie, a pleasure chatting with you. Darlie Newman, again, travels with Darlie. You can see this Wyoming episode on April 17th at 10 on Wyoming PBS, and and you can catch it, uh, all the episodes, again, at 10 at night on Mondays on Wyoming PBS. Thanks so much for joining us.
1: Thank you. The controversial play, What Would Crazy Horse Do?, recently made its national debut in Laramie, of all places. Playwright and Lakota member Larissa Fasthorse says the script is her most widely read, but no theater has actually performed it until now. As Wyoming Public Radio's Melody Edwards reports, that had a lot to do with the
8: play's subject matter, racial purity. Early in the play, after grieving the death of their grandfather, twins Calvin and Journey get a knock on their door. It's a woman and her bodyguard. She hands them her business card.
0: Anyone can make a fake business card.
9: Seriously, who makes a Ku Klux Klan business card? <laughs> I've
0: got hundreds of them. The twins are the last
8: two members of a fictitious South Dakota tribe, and the woman is the clan's imperial dragon. She's there to blackmail the twins into dancing in a powwow, promoting the preservation of racial bloodlines, indigenous and white. Not the kind of thing audiences are used to laughing about.
0: So you're affiliated with the man who led the Klan? We
3: are the (laughs) Klan. It's never used to happen when we wore the robes.
8: And it's also not your typical small-town theater production. Relative Theatrics founder and director Ann Mason, who also performs the part of the clan's Imperial Dragon, says a couple years back she read about a white man shooting two Native Americans at a rehab center in Riverton.
9: I thought, why have I not been exposed to plays that show the Native American perspective, which is something that is so pertinent and relevant, especially to Wyoming audiences.
8: So she started looking for some. That's when she discovered, what would Crazy Horse do?
9: and i just thought this is a relative theatrics play we need to do this
8: this company
5: when they contacted me i was like you mean laramie right like laramie laramie i've been to laramie like
8: <laughs> that's the playwright larissa fasthorse she says while the play has been read lots of times around the country this is the first stage production she says that's because it's strong medicine
5: i watch audiences they laugh really loudly and then they you see that cringing silence because they've like oh was i supposed to laugh should i not laugh And that's what I love, because the goal of this play to me is to change the way you look at things and change the way you think.
8: And the crazy thing is, the story is inspired by actual history. In a South Dakota museum, Fast Horse discovered a flyer promoting a Klan-sponsored powwow from the late 1920s.
5: That just blew my mind. One, why does the Klan want a powwow? Two, who are the Native people that would dance at such a
8: thing? You know, who would say, oh yeah, sure, I'll come dance at the Klan. She found tribal elders who said people danced because Klan members were neighbors and they asked them to then fast horse started exchanging emails with a clan sect working to improve the organization's image they told her things like it's about love not hate it's
5: you know we just take our pride in our culture the same way you do and we, our culture happens to be white and I started getting a little freaked out cuz i realized a lot of these things were i've heard in indigenous circles because preserving race is, is a real issue. For We lose indigenous races off this planet all the time.
8: 16-year-old Talissa Littleson stars in the play as Journey, and this is relevant stuff to her. Most of the northern Cheyenne speakers of her tribe are elderly, and there's a real fear of losing the language forever. And she's seeing more racism.
1: With the new president and these new laws and stuff, everything is changing and I feel like people are kind of being hateful and I don't like it.
8: <laughs> Playwright Fast Horse requests that Native Americans play all the Native American parts in her plays. She says like Little Sun, they bring their own stories to these intense characters. But most theaters aren't willing to take the time to find Native actors. It took director Ann Mason six months to cast this play, emailing, calling, meeting with Native groups, talking after the show, Northern Arapaho Pyram Duran, talks about his audition.
0: I, I don't think I did very good. I think they <clears throat> liked his voice, you know. And <laughs> So, you know, I got the part, and, you know, it, it, it's been a little tough, first time doing any of this.
8: And it's the first time acting for Little Sun too. And that's the point, says Fast Horse, to get more Native Americans on stage.
5: You know, if, you, if you're a Native American person interested in acting, you can wait 30 years before a role comes up specifically for you.
8: For Little Son and director Mason... The experience has opened up future possibilities for both of them.
6: I would want to try out for, you know, parts that aren't just
1: for Native Americans because that would be great for me and also great for our people. I'm actually going to do theater next year in high school. Yes. <laughs> I'm <Yes. tried> <laughs> so
8: Mason is excited to start casting Native Americans in other roles, too. But no matter how far little son goes with acting, it's unlikely she'll ever see another script like What Would Crazy Horse Do? Oops. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Melody Edwards.
0: Thanks for listening to Open Spaces. If you missed a segment or would like to hear it again, go to our website at wyomingpublicmedia.org can always suggest stories or interviews for future shows. And don't forget to sign up for our podcast. And Anna reader is our web editor.
1: It's fun drive time. And if you support our Wyoming news efforts and especially Open Spaces, we'd love it if you could help support that coverage with a pledge of support. Just go to wyomingpublicmedia.org and click on the pledge button.
0: Open Spaces is a production of Wyoming Public Radio News.